Father, as we come once again to the Scriptures of Genesis and look to these words of Yours as our guidance and as our authority, we ask Your Spirit to illuminate our hearts to the applications of these truths in our own generation. And let us be perceptive that we know in our time, in our day, how to walk by faith by looking to You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight um, we're going to follow pretty much the handout, almost verbatim, on page 18 through 22 or 21. Uh, You should tonight have received pages 22 through 25. How God can and cannot be known. That there's no exercise with that because I ran out of space in four pages. I'm trying to do four pages each time, so there'll be one next time. Um, if you look at the at the one that's handed out tonight for next week, if you want to read uh, something that goes with that, uh, my recommendation would be Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and Genesis 1, because those are the passages which basically are, are at stake here. Uh, and I also might suggest something else, just a little practical thing about studying the Bible um, that I found useful over the, uh, just recently. Uh, maybe some of you found out earlier than this. But because I have so many times during the day when I just have a, have a break, you know, and you you can really redeem the time by taking advantage of that. And then when you go to take, try to take advantage of it, you can't find the Bible or your notes are somewhere else. Um, I found a simple trick is to, if I'm studying Genesis 1, is to go to a copy machine and just copy Genesis 1 on the copy machine and carry around the copy. Um, I've been stuck in traffic jams on Churchville Road I don't know how many times. And I must have been able to read Genesis 1 at least 40 times on Churchville Road. So you can get time at odd moments to go through this by just simply using a a Xerox machine. And and another advantage of doing that is because when you're studying the scriptures, um, if you study the text, a good good habit to get into, and uh, this Bible Study Fellowship teaches this, and K. Arthur in in Precepts teaches this, don't be afraid to use pencils and underline and highlighters and so on, and you'll, you'll be less fearful to do that if you're using a Xerox copy of the text. You you might not want to mark your regular Bible up like that. But marking it up and simple things like uh, as you read Genesis 1, and I hope you are reading Genesis 1 again and again as we read through this text because I presume that you are and my commentary during the the evening lectures presupposes that you're doing that. Um, Here's some tips. Just observation tips. When you're reading the scriptures and you're reading a defined unit, uh, you want to first define what the unit of scripture is, and it's not always a chapter. In our case, we're reading actually from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4. That's the block of text. And if you, uh, in the original languages, there are actually markers there that mark that section off where the rabbis over the centuries did that. And uh, some of your Bibles will, will mark that. So it's Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4. And when you, when you approach a unit of Scripture like that, a habit to get into is look for partitions in that segment. In other words, can you see a structure that's repeated? Well, it's obvious and very easy from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4. It's the seven days. So you've got seven segments in that text to look at. Then when you get your segments outlined, and the easy way to do that is take the Xerox and just rule through the segments. Just cut them uh, with just a mark. And then look to see what the structure of the segments are and see if there's an inherent uh, structure to those. In other words, is is there a way that you go from segment day one, day two, day three, day four, day five? Is it the same sequence followed? Or do you notice things different? And, of course, the Holy Spirit is an artist and when he writes, he doesn't just mechanically write. Uh, one of the things that I noticed years ago when I did that, I blocked it out by segments, and that's when I made the discovery that if you look at the verb, God said, you start out in day one, day two, it says, God um, said, let's do this, then God did, and there's that 
formula. God said, then he did. God said, then he did. And in the first couple of days, it says, God said, God did, God named. Then the second day, God said, God did, God named. And then you get down about the day four or five, and there's no more naming. That's kind of interesting. Why didn't God name the rest of it? And then if you look at verbs and nouns, you see the next time name is used is over in Genesis 2 when he says, man, you name the rest. Go ahead, name, when the animals start. So there's those little observations. So segmenting the text out, looking at the structure. Uh, another trick to, to help observing the text is to look for the main verbs. Now, I don't know whether they teach this. They're so busy trying to be sure that we all know how to put condoms on in public school that we don't get into things like grammar. And so, the, um, one of the things they used to teach, I guess they still do in some of the classes, that is just diagramming the sentence. Go back to the subject and the verb and start picking out clauses. And I'll tell you where you're going to get lost if you don't do this, where this becomes absolutely critical is in Paul's writings. If you want to diagram a sentence, it's one of the longest sentences in the Bible, and it's a challenge. If you think you're smart diagramming a sentence, try Ephesians 1.3 and find out where that sentence ends. If you think that Paul's a simple guy, you should die. By the time you get through this, I guarantee it's going to take two pieces of paper because you've got to scotch tape another paper because you get all these clauses going like this that modify the previous clause, that modify the previous clause. And when you get done, I think, I forgot where it ends, I think it's about 14 or 15 or something like that. It's a very long sentence. And by the time you get done with that one sentence in Ephesians, you think, For gosh, this guy Paul, how could you follow him? Uh, it, and it, he was very intricate in his structure. Yet, when you come to John, try to diagram what John was writing. Now it's a completely different structure. Now, you know what that teaches you? It teaches you how the Holy Spirit uses different people in different ways. God respects our individuality. He never makes the church and Christians a bunch of clones. We all have to follow each other. And we're all carbon copies of everybody else. John and Paul were distinct personalities with distinct vocabularies that led distinctly different lives. And they expressed God's Word differently. So, those are the little things, the nuances that make the Bible real for you. All right, tonight, what I want to do is concentrate as we go through the uh, description that we have uh, before us. We start in chapter 2, and I, in this chapter, we deal with the creation event itself. Now, all of it up to this point, we've we tried to introduce things. And the reason we spent so long trying to introduce things is to convince you that by the time we get to this point of looking at, at the text and looking at a key event that you be aware everyone comes to the Bible with presuppositions. And we want to be sure what those presuppositions are and we want to understand that we have to correct for them or at least be aware that they're there. Now, we're all, all we're going to do for evening after evening is look at Genesis 1.1 to Genesis 2.4. And by the time we get through three or four more weeks of this, going through this creation event, you will see how crucial this, this chapter is for the doctrines of God, man, and nature. Foundational doctrines. It's all set up here. And that's something else that you want, to, another rule of studying the Bible. One of the neat things about the scriptures, a little, little side note here, is if uh, if you notice where and how something is first introduced in Scripture, that's the most important occurrence of a word. Like if you have a concordance and you look up a word and you see it occurs here, 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 and here, and here, and it, you have a whole stream of references, a key is always watch where the word first occurred. Look at the context where it first occurred. And that will give you a big clue about how that word is being used in the Bible. There's a whole context of meanings associated with it. Well, today, we want to go in and look at creation for the distinctive characteristics of that event and where that 
event leads us. In other words, starting with a biblical creation, we are led to think certain ways about God. This is without getting into all the details, just the creation in general. We've already said, just to, by way of review, that we've made the general observation about Genesis, that, that, uh, and the suggestion was made that I Xerox this, which I will do, and it will be part of the handout next time, um, that we can observe this, this difference. This is not something we're, we're, we're suggesting. This is not an opinion. This is, comes out of observations. And that's why I gave you Enuma Elish, which is a typical pagan creation text, so you can see for yourself that there is no, in, the, in that text, there's no ex nihilo. That is, gods are creating matter out of their anatomy. That's what's happening. In the exercise that you had to do for tonight, in that last question, the question was, if you look at the, or this next to the last question, was if you look at the processes God uses in Genesis to create, what do you observe? Versus the processes that the gods use in pagan literature. Well, how, what is the difference? Anybody want to come forward with that? What, what, what do you notice about the way God creates versus the way the gods were creating in the, in the pagan text? When God creates, He speaks. It's always a spoken, sovereign, omnipotent word. God speaks and it was so. In the pagan texts, what you often have them doing is procreating or killing the bodies of the gods and making parts of the universe out of the bodies of the gods. In other words, the anatomy of the gods become the universe. That's a picture you want to see. It's always true. Always is true. And that means it's not ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means from nothing. God of the Bible creates out of nothing besides his own word. Whereas the, the gods of paganism, what they have to do is they create the world out of themselves. They are somehow part of the universe. So that's a very sharp distinction, and it's one that we come back to again and again. All right, we said that in, in page 18 in the notes that creation, the creation event, is the defining event for knowing who and what God is. Now, many of you have been in liturgical churches and you know the creeds that you recite. And the creeds, all the creeds, basically begin somewhat like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You notice the creeds never begin with, I believe in Jesus. Now, you ever ask yourself why that is? Why don't the creeds begin with that? Obviously, they do believe in Jesus, but why don't they start the creed that way? The reason they don't start the creed that way is because the Holy Spirit didn't start the book of Revelation that way. This book doesn't begin with Jesus. This book begins with creation. And hence, the creeds, the historic creeds of the church always begin with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, because that defines God. So creation is a defining event of who God is. The cross and the resurrection, are they important? Absolutely. But the cross and the resurrection tell you what this God is doing. But God himself is defined by the event of creation. This is why it is such a critical event. It sets the universe apart from God and God apart from the universe and defines who our God is. And as I said on page 18, the importance and why the creation, as it were in this point, eclipsed the cross is, and that's the underlying sentence there, redemption would be unimportant if the God who redeemed wasn't the creator. If God is not the creator, then everything else is sort of quasi-relevant. So now we come down to the distinctives. And I mentioned that uh, in the diagram on page 19, which is another diagram that uh, I want you to think about a lot. On page, um, on page 19, I've tried to, in a, in a diagrammatic way, depict the difference between 
what the Bible teaches versus what paganism teaches. And in the biblical creation, you have God eternally existing. There never was a time when God did not exist. So God is eternal, God is infinite, and God is personal. And then the creation event marks the T sub zero, it marks the start of creation. Now, here is why that diagram is so important. I want you to look at where the X is, where the X marks the creation event. And I want you to do a little thought experiment, a little imagination, a trip in your imagination. And it will challenge the very structure of your imagination to do this. But think back to that creation event. You have read Genesis 1-1 a number of times. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, so forth. Imagine being present at verse 2 of Genesis. Imagine seeing the, all the mass of the universe in this watery mode. And you are somehow present. And it's just been called into existence, and you've just been called into existence. Now look at this chart at the X marks the spot for the creation event. Now, seconds before God called the universe into existence, if we can conceive of time, it wasn't there. Only God was there. And this is, what, this is the discipline spiritually that you want to go through when you think about creation, is that God preceded everything. It is not God and the universe that always existed. It is not God and the laws of physics that always existed. It is not God and the particles, the subatomic particles that always existed. It is not even God and, say, a universe of another order that always existed. It is only that God and God alone always existed. Now, this produces a number of exciting things, which we'll, we'll want to get to now as we work through this. On the pagan side of the house, eventually what paganism has to do is to say, all we can say is there was mystery in eternity past. That's all we can say. Just mystery in eternity past. We know not from whence we come, and we know not to where we go. That is the ultimate confession of paganism. And everything in between the left and the right on that line of paganism, with mystery on the left, you could say mystery on the right also, in between those, those parts of the line, all you ever will get is some form of transformation. You never get creation. And that's where we want to distinguish. There's two words here. You might circle them in that diagram. Creation and transformation. And it's something for you, it's a mental tool for you to think with. When, when people come to you, for example, and they talk about the Big Bang, which is a, the prevalent physics model of the origin of the universe, when you think about that and you ask deeper questions and you say, well, what was the universe like in the first three seconds? And they'll give you this, this story, of the best that physicists can do to reconstruct this Big Bang. The problem is that even there, matter energy and some form of physical laws exist. So that really is not creation. That is transformation of the universe in one primeval state into another state which we recognize today. It is a transformation. It is not a creation. So be careful of the vocabulary word, creation. People tend to use that in a sloppy fashion. And when we want to be clear as Christians about what God's Word says and what it doesn't say, when God says in Genesis 1-1, I create... Let's, let's turn to Genesis 1-1 and refresh our memory right at this point. Let's look at that text and soak in it just a few minutes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are a word pair that mean the whole universe. There's no other word pair available in the Hebrew language for universe. Heavens and earth, that, those two terms coupled together equal what we today would call by universe. That's, the, that's just the Hebrew way of saying universe. So, it is an all-encompassing point in verse 1. 
There's nothing outside of the heavens and nothing outside of the earth. If I say God created the heavens and the earth, I mean God has created all that there is outside of himself, that is. Now, if you'll hold the place and turn to Exodus chapter 20, that, that chapter where God you know, reveals the Ten Commandments. Turn to the second book over, chapter 20, verse 11. And you'll see here, I, I take you here, by the way, like I took you last week to all those New Testament verses, because what I want you to do is get in a habit. When you read the Old Testament, learn to read it in the same way that the people who wrote the New Testament read it. Or the people that wrote later portions of the Old Testament, they, how they interpreted the earlier portions of the Old Testament. That's how you learn to interpret Scripture. It's not what some person says in the 20th century that Scripture means. It's, it's the rules of interpretation were already established by the very people who wrote it. Now, here is Moses, who was the compiler of Genesis. Okay? And he says to us in, John, and in, in Exodus 20, look at verse 1, God spoke these words. Now, look who's doing the speaking. The subject of the verb in verse 1 is not Moses. The subject of the verb is God. And so what we are to, left with is that from verse 2 on, these are the words that God spoke. It's not Moses making them up. It's what, if you were a tape recorder and you taped it, you could have taped this in Hebrew. And God himself says in verse six, 9 and 10, notice the context, verse, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the context. But look how he gives you reasons why the Sabbath day is important. Six days you will labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle. It's an interesting point. If you look at the Mosaic Law Code, which we will probably get into some year, um, you'll see that the first laws of hum hum being humane to animals are given by Moses. Very interesting. The other law codes in the ancient world did not have provisions to protect animals. Or they had somewhat, but usually it was economic reasons. Here you have a very clear mandate that the animals are to be cared for and to be protected. Now, if you didn't read verse 11, you stopped at verse 10. Just, just look at verse 9 and 10 for a minute. Now, halting at the period at the end of verse 10. If you had heard there, you picture yourself now, you're standing there before Mount Sinai, and God blasts forward these words in Hebrew language, and they reverberate down through that canyon. I've showed you pictures at the Mount Horeb, and how you can stand down the base of that mountain, and you take your camera, and you look back out, and there's this tremendous um, valley. And it's very easy to conceive of a million people in this valley with this sound of God reverberating down the valley. Remember what the people said after they heard this? They said, hey Moses, you take care of this. You know, this is a little high voltage for us. And so obviously they were hearing, hearing words. Now if you just stopped with a period at the end of verse 10, how would you interpret days? Just think about that for a minute. What is the context? Verse 8, 9, and 10 is talking about what? What we call the week. Now, hasn't it ever struck you as a little odd that all over the world, and every continent, in every culture, the week is always seven? Now, how is that? You ever hear of a week of ten days? At times, there have been attempts to do this. One of the silly things that communism did in the 30s in Russia when they were trying to increase productivity, uh, I've read, although I can't document it completely, is they actually tried to experiment where they tried to keep the factories running for eight or nine days and then have one day break. Eight or nine days, one day break, because they thought, hey, greater productivity. And what they found out was they weren't getting greater productivity. People were getting tired and making more mistakes. And they found out there was an optimum here of six to one, and that when you violate the optimum, human efficiency goes down. Gee, I wonder why. See, because we're created that way. Here's the guy that made us. 
and he's telling us, I built you a certain way and I structured the universe a certain way, so follow the directions. Now, verse nine, verse 8 and 9, it's days. Nobody has a problem with that. It's, not, it's very clear in verse 10, it's a day. The only time people have a problem is when they get to verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that see them in. Now, if you, re- if you were there sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, you would have to structure that if God's saying what He's saying in verse 11, then Genesis must be to be interpreted in a straightforward, normal way. How else would you interpret it? Now, today, the problem is we're under pressure. Obviously, for the last 200 years, the church has been under tremendous intellectual pressure about this problem of the age of the universe and so on and so forth. And that's why in the previous chapter I went into the accommodation strategies and so on. There's a lot of pressure there. We all know this. And any educated person knows a lot of pressure. But I can't bend my interpretation because of the pressure. I have to trust the Lord that somehow this will work out. But I can't be dishonest to the text. I've often, I suggested to Fred Kunkel, he runs the Olive Branch at Christian Bookstore, and I said, Fred, you know, someday I'd like a Christian, Christian manufacturing company to take a little piece of, of rubber, like inner tube or something, and, and just make up a little Bible with rubber pages and a rubber cover and a rubber binding. We call it the first liberal edition of the Bible. You can stretch it any way you want. Pass it out. But you can't rip through the text of Scripture. If you're going to play Greece with the text in Genesis, and we, if we have problems interpreting the first two chapters of the Bible, you think that's a problem. What are you going to do with Ezekiel and Revelation? So, that's the idea. We want to interpret the text the way the other authors. No, no argument. That's the way they interpret it. Okay. So, let's look then at the results of looking at biblical creation and paganism. I've organized on, on verses on page 19 and 20. I've done it under three, three key questions that men have asked. And then, of course, those of you who have read a little bit know very well what I'm doing. I'm just simply going through the areas where uh, philosophy has divided itself into metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And it's a tripartite structure known to every student uh, goes in philosophy course. But let's look at these questions. Let's look at the question, who am I? Basic identity question. Today we hear all things, we've got a problem with self-identity. We can't figure out who we really are. And, and that's not silly. There's a real problem here. Who are we? What is the universe all about? Now look at it from two points of view. Okay, go back to the diagram on page 19 and think. Let's, let's look at that diagram and think about it for a minute. If the Bible is true, let's draw a picture. If the Bible is true, and if we have God as the Creator, and He has a character and a being of His own, and then we have the creation down here, Let's draw the creation as a, as a separate thing. I'll leave, on this diagram, I'm going to leave God as an open box. It's just my way of saying He's infinite. So all we see is part of Him. We never can glimpse all of Him. And God speaks the Word. And so therefore, God, through the Word, cr- creates the universe. We are part of that universe. If... God had not created the universe, so we blank out the universe in our own existence. What would there have been, even today? God. Would there be protons and electrons? No. Would there be laws of physics? No. But there would be God. Now, out of this comes an enormously powerful truth that is deeply moving. What I'm getting at in this who am I is that the basic environment of all is a person, an infinite personal God. Not an impersonal force, not an it, not protons and electrons, not DNA, not laws of physics. All those weren't there one time. Only God was there. 
So behind what we see in the universe stands a person. Go out to the furthest galaxy and God is there. The universe, as big as the Hubble telescope is making it appear to us in the pictures that we're getting back, as big as the universe appears, it's enormous, God pre-exists it all. So the challenge in our time is to take the new data that we're seeing and wrap it up in a biblical package. Always, remember that first evening we were together and I drew that little picture, that slimy amoeba? And I said, the gospel comes out, you feed out the gospel in a little piece, and then the unbeliever will take it, and it's almost like an amoeba just goes, slurps it up. You hear that sucking noise. Right? It's because they take our truth and absorb it within their frame of reference. Now, what we have to do is do the same thing. And what does that make me? Well, what that makes me is, what does Genesis say I am in Genesis 1, verse 26? What does God say we are? Let's look at Genesis 1, 26. What it says we are is that inside the creation there's one and only one creature called man. And of all the things that God made, if you carefully observe the text, there's one and only one part of the universe that's said to be made in His image. One and only one part of the universe that's said to be made in God's image. What is that? Man. And that means whoever is a human being Whatever the race, whatever the culture, wherever they are, whatever point in history, whatever language they speak, they are made in God's image. And this is powerful, and we'll see just how powerful it is in the handout that you have for next, next time. But I'm just pointing out here, in answer to the question, who am I? I get a very distinct answer if I begin with biblical creation. If biblical creation is valid, if it is a true event that happened, that makes me a creature bounded in time and space whose existence is dependent upon a God who was always there and I wasn't always there. The DNA that makes me up was passed down to me by Adam. I told one of my sons who's working in Johns Hopkins Laboratory and I said, you know, when you look at the DNA and he's working with little chunks and pieces trying to trace how inherited defects move from the father to the mother, and the mother to their children. And when you look at these little chunks, just think about it. Do you realize that the chunks that you're observing in the DNA are the lineal descendants of the act of verse 26? In verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image, in verse 27, he created man in his own image, that was when the first DNA was structured for man. And every piece of DNA that we all share has chemically derived itself in its lineage from that DNA of verse 27. That's where it started. We carry Adam and Eve with us. Whoever we are, wherever we are, we are carrying around the direct genetic baggage from Adam and Eve. And there's implications in Romans chapter 5 about that. So, this is an observation that we'll come back when we get into salvation, redemption, and so forth. But the idea there is that we get a distinct answer. Let's go back to the question once again, very quickly. Who am I? If I work with the presupposition of the scriptural viewpoint, the answer is this. If I deny this biblical answer, if I say that the universe is the impersonal, the bottom line in verse 19, now what does that make me? Let's draw a picture. What that makes me is that God, if He exists, we'll put God's, parenthesis S, 
men, animals, rocks. We have this scale of being. And who knows what's out here beyond it. Fate, chance, whatever. And this is why on page 20, the first full paragraph, I have this sentence. And what does the pagan worldview tell you that you are? It tells you that reality at bottom is one. What do I mean by that? Reality at bottom is one. What I mean by that is you can't split between God and the creation. That split between the creation and God is available only to the Bible-believing Christian. We are the only ones who can make the split. Everyone else holds to this idea that all reality encompasses everything. One level of existence. And then I say, there is only one level of being. It matters not whether reality is pictured as a vast machine, as many people did in the 19th century, or some sort of cosmic organism, which is ancient and also now coming into modern vogue. The universe, and this is the sentence I want you to look at, the universe beneath you, above you, in front of you, and behind you is an infinite, impersonal it. You and your personal nature differ only in degree from its electrons and protons. In the chain of being, your thinking, talking, emotions, loving, artistic expressions are merely surface appearances on a reality that is basically impersonal. Now, you should be depressed. You should really be profoundly depressed by that sentence. See, folks, this is where the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. Pity the poor non-Christian. He doesn't realize it, but this is where he is. I'll read that again. In the chain of being, your thinking, your talking, your emotions, your loving, and artistic expressions are merely surface appearances on a reality that is basically impersonal. You and other human beings are really only person-like bubbles floating for the moment on an impersonal ocean of chance. Ultimately, you and other human beings are tragically and cosmically alone. Francis Schaeffer often speaks of the funny remark uh, Charlie Chaplin made when uh, the, the um, Voyager 2 was it, forgot what the, the probe was, it went to Mars. And they had all the TV cameras and the little foot came out in the probe and everybody was sitting there and, you know, wondering if we're going to get some organic molecules on this probe to find out if there's life there and there wasn't. And somebody asked Charlie Chaplin, well, what's your response to that? They were just sitting around talking. And he said, I feel lonely. And it wasn't a funny remark. It's exactly what this is. And you see, people don't see the consequences of things. You as Christians, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, it, we should be the people who interpret to our fellow beings the loneliness and the darkness of the world. You want to be free in your thought, they say. And this is where you wind up. If you want to be free, just understand, this is where you wind up. You have to wind up this way. You can dress it up with drugs, and believe me, I frankly think a lot of the drugs and a lot of all the other stuff is, is actually... Smart people take drugs. Some of the smartest people in society don't think stupid people take drugs. Don't think poor people take drugs. Smart people take drugs. And you know why they do that? For the same reason they drink. For the same reason they do anything else. If you profoundly grasp what we have just said here that is the result of the non-Christian view of life, life is tragic. It is painful. It pains you to live in existence like this. And therefore, why not? You see, it's not the question just say no to drugs. You've got to have a reason for saying no. If I am in pain, I want morphine or something because I want to stop the pain. And if it's a pain in the soul, it's a pain that involves the way I think about myself, my life, everything. If I really grasp this, and some of the most smart people do grasp this, and it's precisely because they do see this that they take drugs. And you can't stop them from taking drugs until this is clear. Brilliant people take drugs. Huxley was no stupid person. Aldous Huxley was the pioneer in America in the 60s for advocating drugs. He taught at Harvard. 
Why did he advocate taking drugs? Read him. You'll see why. Because he saw this. He saw that ultimately, when you lay aside all the hoopla and get right down to the basics, there is no reason for life. It's just a big cosmic machine. Isn't that true? If you start with a pagan set of values. If you start with a pagan perspective. <clears throat> now go up to the first part in page 20 because there's a note there I want you to see. This sounds a little funny and I'm not sure I want to leave it in this form in the sentence but, in time, but here's what I'm trying to say. Your ultimate environment, as a, this is on the biblical basis now, if there is an event called biblical creation, your ultimate environment as a person who thinks, who talks, who experiences, imagine this. You know, in Star Wars, they talk about the great force. You have Darth Vader and so forth and going on in his manifestation of the force. But think of what you really have in the universe as we know it. We have a God who speaks. And that God who speaks has a sense of art. He appreciates music. He appreciates music. I say, you know how I know that? Because when the universe was created, a choir was singing. And you read about that in the book of Job. It says, when, the morn when the God laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars rejoiced. And it's the word for singing. The first song ever sung by a human is Adam to Eve. And we know that because it's a Hebrew, it's in poetic structure. It was a love song. The first music ever uttered by a human being was a love song. Now, where does this come? Because we are made in God's image. He sings. He loves music. He has emotions. That which we see in ourselves that we identify as that we're people, that's part of Him. That's patterned after Him. That's the magnitude. It's mind-blowing to think about this. You can spend the next 65 years of your life thinking about this and the implications of just starting from biblical creation or starting from a pagan idea that there is nothing there except the impersonal machine cranking out molecules. That's all. Now we come to the second question and the third one. Again, these are critical questions that we'll come up with from time to time. I'm not intending to turn this class into any more theory. It's just that I want you to see this because it comes up in literature. I think it comes up in personal life. I think it comes up in sociology. I think it comes up all across the board of life. I think we're always involved in this. It's just we don't see it too, too much. And that is, the next question is, what is truth? Another allied question is, how do I know? And that's a question that's tortured people. Actually tortured people. How can I really be sure of, of truth? And we have to approach this question like I've been trying to model for you. Every great question can be approached from a viewpoint. It has to be. You can't approach these questions naked. You come to the question with a, with a bunch of stuff and you approach it out of a viewpoint. You approach it from a biblical viewpoint or you approach it from a non-biblical viewpoint, but approach it from a viewpoint you will. Now, if you approach the question of truth from the biblical point of view, let's go back to the diagram and look again. If this is God, and we have God, through His Word, creating the universe. Let's think for, back for a moment on that, on that chart on page 19 again. Just prior to God creating the heavens and the earth, when He and He alone existed, did He have a plan in His head for what He was going to do? Or did He just say, gee, I feel lonely today. Did God have an eternal plan? Anybody know a verse of Scripture that shows where God has, from all eternity, a plan? There's many passages, but anybody? Want to throw out a verse? I'm sure some of you can think of one. What about Ephesians 1? Hold the place and turn to Ephesians 1. Just to get used to the fact that our God had a plan in His mind. Turn over to the New Testament. This is usually used when, the, when we get into things like predestination and so on, but we're not going to get into that tonight. All I want to do is, is, less, is more modest. I just want to look at, uh, at verse 4, verse and 5 of Ephesians chapter 1. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless with Him. Now, when did we get chosen? Before what? Before the foundation of the world. That means, folks, before this. That means before Genesis 1.1. That means that God had a plan in mind for eternity. It means that He had it all in mind. You know, there are two people that never learn anything. We'll get into this when we get the attributes of God in two weeks. And we won't have two weeks. We have to cut for Thanksgiving, but uh, three weeks, I guess. Um, we'll have class next week. But two people that never learn anything, you know who they are? Moron and God. A moron because he can't learn, and God because he can't learn because he knows everything. So, there are two people that never learn, God and morons. The idea is that God has a plan that includes everything. So, what does that have to do with the question we're asking, what is truth? Anybody see what it leads? If you're looking at something down here in the creation, some feature, let's make it real personal. Let's make it an event in your life. Okay? Let's, in fact, make it... Uh, let's go back in the time machine to a tent in the Middle East occupied by one Abraham and Sarah. They're having a little marital dispute over children. And Abraham says, All right! Have it your way, lady. And he shacks up with a maid. Okay? An event. What's the meaning of that event? In their lifetime, did Sarah and Abraham fully perceive what would come forth out of Ishmael? Did they have a clue? They had some of a clue, yes. They knew some of the truth. Today in the Middle East, do we know more of the truth? of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. 1948, Isaac and Ishmael. 1967, Isaac and Ishmael. Rabin is assassinated and we worry about who's going to take over in the Palestinian, the PLO. Isaac and Ishmael. The meaning of what happened centuries and centuries ago in that tent in the Middle East how can one person perceive the true meaning? We never do. Sarah and Abraham could know some of the truth, bracketed by their time and their experience. But they themselves didn't know the full meaning of their own life. Maybe they do now because they can see history unroll. And we will one day see the meaning of things that we thought so insignificant in our lifetime. Events that frustrated us events that came into our life that we considered them to be interruptions and disturbances or unfortunate things that happened. But just as Isaac, uh, but just as Sarah and Abraham, rather, just as Sarah and Abraham can now look backward in history and see, oh, that was what God was doing with that incident that happened. Gee, didn't realize a marital dispute would wreck the world for 20 centuries. The meaning of an act at a point in time. Now let's go on a little bit more and enlarge this. If I start with a creation, if I have God who created from all eternity, He had a plan in His mind, that means God has a plan expressed by His Word and truth inside the creation is that which corresponds to His plan. And I know something truly as much as I know its place in His plan. And I cannot say that I really know truth until I locate what I'm talking about in the context of His eternal plan. That's why we say we only know bits and pieces of truth. We're going to get into this later. There's a song we sing in our hymn book all the time in the fact that I know in whom I have believed and in persuade so on. It's a quotation from Romans. You notice what the that is a very theologically correct hymn because the hymn writer there, because he is being faithful to the text of Scripture, is carefully singing something that... he Notice what he's not singing. He's not saying that I know everything there is to know. 
He is not saying, I even thoroughly understand God. He is not even saying that at least this I know. What he is saying is, I know him. I know enough of God's character to be able to trust Him for all the unknowns. Because as a human being, I am filled, I am faced daily with unknowns. I have no control. And so my salvation, epistemologically and how I know, is because I know Him and I trust His character on the basis of His revelation. And therefore I say, I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able. Why? Because He is there. And I know my God well enough to know that He is a God who plans. He is a God who has rationality. And as chaotic as life is, I know enough about God to know that His reason prevails. Somehow His reason prevails. You know what that produces? Stability in your life. And in this generation, with the chaos we see going on, it's the key to sanity. I don't know not how a a thinking non-Christian is not going insane in this decade. With the changes that are happening and the rate of history changing like we see it now, how anybody can keep their mind from fragmenting, I don't know. It is not a wonder to me that people are flipping out, blowing their brains out. Because the stress is so high about this thing. And here is where the, uh, the little fundies, here we are, well, here we are is right. Show me somebody else who has an answer to this. And here we ought to be proud in the proper sense as Christians. We have something the world has nothing of, knows nothing of, and can't even grasp. It's a concept of truth. They're the ones who are saying, oh, well, what is truth? That's like Pilate used to say in the trial. Jeez, that, what is truth? Well, you better figure out, buddy, what the truth is because it's what keeps you going. If you really believe that you can't know something truly, what does that produce? I'll tell you what it produces. You know, you hear it said again and again, oh, gee, kids don't want to learn anything. Oh, gee, we can't get anybody to read anymore. We can't get anybody to think anymore. Well, look, why should they? If there's not truth to find out, why go to all the pain of learning to read? Why did people in our society learn to read in the first place? You know why? Because they had a Bible. The first reading programs were not just to read the almanac. The reading programs were so that a person could come to knowledge of Jesus Christ on their own by reading Scripture. That's the source of literacy. And mark my words, you take away this powerful concept of truth and literacy will go away. As night follows day, there's no reason for me, if I'm a kid, to go learn something that's going to change tomorrow. It's too hard to learn today if what I learn today is going to be obsolete tomorrow. Figure it out. So it's this power, all these powerful things come out of this creation event. You see what, why we're saying Genesis 1 is very important? Look at what comes out of this. Now, if I am a pagan, obviously, as I've said, what comes out of it is that I have total flux. Let's go back to that diagram that I drew about God, man, and the universe. Here we are, surrounded by fate, chance, God knows what, subject to a universe that transforms itself from one moment to the next, everything in flux. Why should I bother to learn? It strikes at the very heart and the very motivation to learn anything. Okay, let's go to the third question. This is one that's quite straightforward on page 21. How should I then live? And this, of course, we're left with values. And if you look at that paragraph right after how should I live, it begins with you just learned. Let's look, read that together and uh, just follow me as I read through that. You just learned that in the pagan worldview, you are alone and you are autonomous. And I explain the word autonomous. Autonomous means that you are auto, self, nomos, law, that you are a law for yourself. If you really believe this, and you are a person, then you have to have the idea that it's your mind that reaches out and creates truth. have to. You're not discovering truth that was there prior to you. 
On a biblical basis, yeah. There was a God who pre-existed the universe, who had a plan in his head. And so there's something out there worth my brain coming to know. His plan. But if there is no God out there who has a plan for the universe and it's just there, then what my thoughts and my minds and everything, it just becomes just another, just another feeling, just another little activity of my brain, that's all. That's being autonomous. So you just learn in the pagan worldview you are alone and autonomous. That means you have a big problem. With no one there to whom you are ultimately responsible, and notice this sentence, with no one there to whom you are ultimately responsible, you are left on your own. You may do what seems right in your own eyes. The rub comes when you meet another autonomous person who is doing what seems right in his eyes. You could attach, or try to, your loyalty to society, hoping to convince your doubting heart that at least here you have a standard of right and wrong, or you could try Mother Earth. One of our parents just told me, walking in here tonight, right tonight here in Harford County in a public school system, here's what happens. Have a class. And we invite the uh, an Indo in American Indian type Mother Earth thing. So now we're talking about the flowers being our brothers and our sisters. Excuse me? Flowers being brothers and sisters? I don't think so. Flowers are not created in God's image. Slight problem here. That's paganism. You know what that is? That's this. Continuity of being. See, a lot of you thought probably this is all theory. It's not theory. I had it right here this afternoon in public school, right here in Harford County. Continuity of being. And the most, probably the whole class just sat there, and Chris, some of the Christian kids sat there and laughed at it. They knew that somehow this is crazy. But, but really, I'll bet you half the administrators in that school haven't got the foggiest notion of what happened today in that classroom. Haven't got a clue. Because they can't think about the differences in what we're studying right here. And yet it goes on and on and on. And the tragedy is, as I say in this paragraph on page 21, the tragedy is, every time this happens, you are eroding values some more. You are destroying the moral basis. You are wrecking standards of right and wrong because you're destroying the foundation of them. That's what's happening. So, I say in those last two sentences, you notice I uh, emphasize in parenthesis society and Mother Earth. I'm not trying to be sarcastic there. Mother Earth, I mean nature. There's only two other places you can get ethics from. If you knock out God, where else could you go to get an ethic? Society, right? You've heard it. The argument of society. Here's the counter to that. Write it in your notes or at least put a little reference out there so you can use this when it comes up in conversation. If somebody tells you that ethics come out of society, ask them what a German evangelical would have done in 1937 when he would protest against Nazi racism and, and be answered with, oh, but the majority of people believe this. Now what happens? If 51% of the people believe it, that's society, right? Do you really believe that morals come out of a 51% vote? Man, if that's true, we live dangerously. So morals can't come out of a society. Well, do any of you remember the great trial at the end of World War II? It's a very poignant memory in, in legal history. Where was the trial when they brought the Nazis in and they judged them? The world brought them. Nuremberg. What was the Nazi defense when those great proud men of the SS Corps went into court and their lawyers stood behind them? What was the defense of the Nazis at Nuremberg? I followed my orders. Yes, sir. Society told me to do it. What was the judgment at Nuremberg? Did the nations accept that defense at Nuremberg? They did not. Now, that's something to remember when you get in a conversation and somebody yak-yaks and oh, I think society says. Oh, really? Well, what do you do with Nuremberg then? The Nazis were right. If society determines right and wrong, the Nazi racists were right and you can't answer them. The only way you can answer them 
is to say that society is not the source of ethic. God is, and He transcends society. If you don't hold to that position, you have no defense, no defense against this sort of thing. When a society collectively becomes mad, you can't stand against it. Or, what's happening today is getting, so to speak, more sophisticated, we think, and we're going back to nature. The problem here is, if you make nature the source of ethics, what happens between the boundary between man and animal now? It goes away. So now we see the spectacle where we're concerned if a seal hangs himself up on a rock and we have a million dollar rescue effort and meanwhile we can pull a baby halfway down the birth canal and shove a scissor up its brain and suck its brains out. Isn't that logical though? If it's just nature, you can define your ethic any way you please. I talked about a rubber Bible. You get a rubber ethic. Stretch it any way you want. So these are practical questions, folks, that come right out of the Scriptures and right out of Genesis. If you look down on page 21, summary, those questions that I had, I hope you look those verses up in verses 1 and uh, in, in, in question, the verses listed in the question 1, the verses listed on the question 2, the Job and Genesis references. All they're trying to show, and if you haven't read those, please do read those passages. Read them slowly in the light of what we've talked about. Because those are key passages in the Old Testament where God's distinct nature that transcends the creation. The creator-creature distinction. And if you'll look in particularly the Job reference, Job 38, where God is doing the speaking, see if you can, as you read that, read God's emotions. The emotional level with which God speaks those words are very strong. And you want to pick that flavor up.